Welcome to the Redeemer Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in on our sermon series through the Book of Romans. Throughout history, this has been regarded as the greatest letter ever written. It has been used by God to change people's lives for centuries, and we have prayed that God would use it to change your life as well. In a world full of bad news, Romans is about good news, and we hope God uses this sermon to help you believe and enjoy the good news of the gospel. Thanks for listening. The scripture for today is Romans 9, 1 through 18. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac your offspring shall be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, About this time next year I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Amen. Amen. Thanks, David. Welcome. My name is Jason Hatch. I am the lead and the teaching pastor here at Redeemer. And as many of you well know, we have been in the book of Romans for a few weeks, actually a few months now. So I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 9. Uh, if you're here in person, welcome. Super excited to see you. Some smiling faces. Uh, hope that you're glad to be here. If you're joining with us online, we're honored to have you as well. Uh, whether you're part of the Redeemer family uh, or perhaps you're just curious and maybe seeking some things in your life, I'll pray that the Lord will uh, give you what you're seeking, and whether you know it or not, I think uh, what you're seeking is truly Jesus, that he gives peace and hope and direction uh, and purpose and forgiveness. And so for everyone in the room, I'm excited to walk through Romans chapter 9, although uh, historically it's a fairly difficult chapter. Uh, Romans chapter 1 through 8 are pretty clear. It's talking about just the basics and the beauty of the gospel, that God makes us right, uh, biblical terms. He gives us righteousness, and that's 
something he does in Christ. Uh, He gives it to us by faith. Uh, He gives it to us with grace. It's a free gift that he gives to us uh, because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. So it's unpacking just the beauty of the gospel. Uh, And then in a few weeks, we're going to get to chapter 12. So part one is one through eight, the gospel. Part three is chapters 12 through 16, talking about the implications of the gospel. So if you love practical things, uh, things that can practically help you day to day, stick around. He gets very, very practical. Uh, And then in the middle, you've got this section of chapters 9, 10, and 11, uh, which are complex. Uh, They are difficult to understand, difficult to, to grasp. They're explaining some weighty things about God's character, yet they're incredibly important for us to understand. If we want to know who this God is that we are uh, trying to understand and to serve. Uh, I just realized this morning it's August 1st, uh, which means uh, I have now been in ministry really preaching and teaching week in and week out for 20 years this month. Uh, And I have uh, studied a lot. Thank you. (laughs) Some of you are like, I expect you to be much better after 20 years. You get what you get, right? And you don't throw a fit. Uh, 20 years, week, almost daily I have spent time for 20 years not just reading but studying the Bible and there are still things that I have questions about, things that I just simply do not understand. Uh, it's almost as though you can spend your life and understand some things incredibly well and still feel like you're seeing through a window dimly, right? Even the Apostle Paul that wrote Romans claims that we just, we see things dimly. We don't know everything about God. There are some things that he declares to us and reveals to us about himself and his character, uh, and it's not going to answer all of our questions, but it is going to be enough. It's going to be enough for us to understand and relate to God and to get us all the way home. And Paul says that someday when the scales fall off, when these bodies die and we get to be with Jesus forever, we will no longer see things dimly. Things will make perfect sense. Uh, He even says that we will know God even as right now we are fully known by God. So uh, we set some, uh, some parameters a few weeks ago as we walk into some theological things, and one of the ground rules that I set for us is that we just have to come to the place that we are willing to let the Bible tell us what to believe. Amen? We are going to let the Bible, because we're not into speculation about God, speculation about God leads to all sorts of things. If you say, well, I think God is like this, and he should act like this, and it doesn't seem fair to me if he does this, um, that's all speculation. Uh, speculation is not helpful. What we need is revelation, and what we have in the Bible, it's the Word of God. It's the revelation of God where He doesn't just leave us to our own creativity, which is fallen, but He reveals to us, He says, This is who I am, this is what I am like. So we want the Bible to, to shape and to mold us, and Romans chapter 9 is, is no different. And while it's complex and it's difficult, and over the years it's caused problems, this is the, the posture that I want to invite all of us to walk into this with. Number one, humility for ourselves, and two, grace for others. We're going to have humility for ourselves, grace for others, because we're all on a journey submitted to God's word, being formed and fashioned in, into the image of Jesus. Uh, Two things after walking through this again a lot this week, Romans chapter 9, two things, while there's some things that are still, I'm trying to work them out, two things are unbelievably and incredibly clear that you're going to see in the first half of chapter 9 today. Number one, God is just. He will never do anything that is unjust. And number two, God is merciful. He goes above and beyond, way out of his way to show mercy and to show grace. 
The topic of Romans chapter 9 is election. Everybody say election. You're like, I thought election season was over. I thought we survived through it. Now they're talking about that again. No, not us choosing a president, but God's really uh, free ability to choose uh, election. And I know for many of you, that word even makes you kind of cringe because you've been taught certain things about it. Uh, yet it's a wildly biblical idea. And so the end of chapter 8, Paul starts talking about election and predestination. Some of you are like, I thought I didn't know we were allowed to use that word. Yeah, it's in the Bible. And so we need to not just use it, but we need to labor to understand it. And so he gets, Paul gets in the end of chapter 8, it's, this, it's like this crescendo of confidence talking about what God has done. He says, God has, he foreknew you, he predestined you, he called you, he justified you, he glorified you, and then Paul anticipates some questions. I don't know if you have any questions, but I'm guessing if you've been paying attention, you might have some questions. And so that's where Paul turns his attention in chapters 9, 10, and 11 to explain some of the answers that arise when he starts talking about God having the, the, the ability to choose things. Because like, I think we can agree that our culture is, is wildly obsessed with the idea of choice, you know, that we want to have free choice in where we send our kids to school. Um, a lot of this issue with abortion has to do with choice. Does somebody have the free choice to uh, end another person's life? Even the vaccination, the big con the conversation is, um, do we have the choice to take it or not? And so I'm not going to get into all those things. Like, I don't want to talk about COVID today, right? Um, but but it, it's interesting. <laughs> Amen. Finally, something I can agree with. Uh, it's interesting that we're so wild. We love the idea and we want people to know that we have the ability to choose, yet we really try to, in an ironic turn, deny God the ability to choose. Because God is God, and this is what Paul is defending in chapter 9. He's defending God's right to be God and to make some choices. Okay? There are some questions you will have, and Paul is very specifically trying to answer a few questions, but just as a side note, he is not going to answer all of your questions. We're going to walk out of this, I think, with some more clarity about God and his justice and his mercy, but maybe with some lingering questions. And so I want to yield to some, uh, some folks that are uh, wiser than I, especially some things that they have to do to set the stage for this. So uh, Pastor Tim Keller uh, has this to say um, about why do we need to even talk about this? Why does, why does Paul approach the idea of election? Why are we talking about it? Because historically it's been difficult, it's been divisive, and he says this, why do we insist on the doctrine of election? He's, he's posing this rhetorical question because some people would say, why do we even talk about it if it causes so many problems? And he says, yes, election causes many difficulties. The best reason for accepting the doctrine is that every alternative creates even more problems and difficulties. The first is this, without election, you compromise the central teaching of the Bible that we are saved by grace alone, not by our works. If the difference between an unbeliever and a believer is ultimately in us, greater humility, greater openness, better decisions, then we are the real authors of our salvation, not Jesus. So it's, it's a wildly biblical idea, and so we need to labor to understand it, and it really is at the core of what it means to understand God's grace. 
I think it's important to know that Romans 9 is in complete harmony with the whole of Scripture. It doesn't violate anything else that fits in together. It's in harmony with the life and the character and the ministry of Jesus. They all work together. So Paul will answer some questions uh, this morning. He's going to answer three questions about this idea of election, this biblical concept of election. Um, But just to know, he won't answer all of our questions. He's going to be talking about God's freedom to make some choices. He doesn't even get into the conversation about our freedom to make choices. And so just to let you know, this is not what he's talking about. That's not his goal in chapter 9. He talks about later on why bad things happen. Does God make all bad things happen and he's sovereign to choose those things or does he allow those things? We just have to walk into this seeing what Paul's trying to do, that he's trying to answer some questions. He's not answering all questions. A commentator named Leon Morris um, says this, talking about this text, as Paul will not answer all of our questions. He says, this will account for the omission of some things that we would like to see dealt with. Thus, Paul argues for God's absolute freedom, and he does not address himself to the measure in which we have freedom or how our freedom relates to God's freedom. If God is free to do what he wills, and if all who are saved are saved because God predestines them, then modern people like you and I are apt to ask, are we not then reduced to the level of puppets? But Paul is not discussing our freedom at all. We would like to have his thoughts on the matter, but that is not the question before him. Stick around, and I think you'll hear some things, especially in chapter 10, how Paul talks about our freedom to choose and to uh, the goal of sharing the gospel so that people might believe and respond. He says that, uh, Leon Morris says, he neither affirms nor denies that we are free. He simply does not discuss, discuss the question at all. So before we jump into Romans chapter 9, you need to know a little bit of the backdrop of this monster mega theme promise that uh, runs throughout history. It's this promise that God made to a man named Abraham, or Abram at the time. He made him a promise. He just decided to choose Abram. There was nothing wildly awesome about Abram. He wasn't varsity, you know, in his uh, sports, or the, you know, he didn't graduate top in his class. He wasn't the most moral person. God just made a choice, and he chose a man named Abram, and he says, I'm going to do something special throughout the course of history through you. I'm going to make you a great nation. He was an old man. And he promised Abram, I will turn you into a great nation, and through you or through this nation, your family, all the nations or all the people groups on planet Earth will be blessed. That is the the promise. So if you're in Romans chapter 9, verse 1, say ready. This is what God's word says. Paul says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul was really upset, unceasing anguish. He had this pit and this knot in his stomach over and over and over. And what you're going to find out is that the people that were birthed out of the family of Abram, many of them have rejected the Christ that came through their line. That's what he was so brokenhearted about the lostness of the Jews that rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Verse 3, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's saying, I, I, if, if I could be cut off from Jesus so that my Jewish brothers and sisters could be included in the faith, he says, I would do that. Verse 4, they are Israelites, and to them 
belong. And then he's going to start working through a long list of ways that God over the centuries has been fulfilling his promise to Abraham all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, God promised Abraham, I will make you a great nation and through you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then Paul starts showing how that was accomplished. He says that uh, the Israelites, they be- to them belong the adoption. Okay, this is not talking about finding an, a, a, a kid in a foster system or orphan that's adopting him. This is Paul reaching back to Exodus when God says that the nation of Israel now has basically been adopted, that Israel now is God's chosen son. That's the idea that this special nation God chose. He says to them belong the glory. This was a shout out to this manifestation of God's presence when the Shekinah glory would, would, would follow them and encamp around them. And that happened only to the nation of Israel, not to other nations. It says, to them, to the Jewish people, the Israelites, belong the covenants. These covenants are things where God creates a relationship and he creates a promise between him and his people. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant that we just talked about, uh, that we later on you find out about what covenant he makes with Moses, a covenant that he makes with David. The covenants that God makes with people throughout the Old Testament were all made to the Jewish people. To, to the Jews belong the covenants. And they're all foreshadowing of Jesus, which you find out later on. To them belong the law. He's talking about the Ten Commandments. Who were the Ten Commandments brought to earth through? The nation of Israel. And then as God added on to them more commands and more laws and more clarification about his character and will for humanity, that belongs to the Jews. It came through them. To worship. It says the worship. Or this visible expression through mainly the temple that was given as a sign and as a symbol to the Jewish people to understand how to worship and relate to God. Paul's like, "All all that came through Abraham's people. He says the promises Right, this is different than, than covenants. I think what they're talking about is mostly the, the Old Testament promises about the Christ or the hundreds of prophecies where the Old Testament would prophesy futuristic things that would take place and would be all ultimately fulfilled against all odds by Jesus Christ. He fulfilled all of the promises laid out to the Jewish people. To them belong the patriarchs, to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, get later on down to Moses and to David. The patriarchs in the long lineage and family tree of Jesus belong to the Jewish people. And then he says, last but not least, and from their race according to the flesh, so the, the Jewish people born out of Abraham from that direct physical lineage is the Christ. Just a little aside here, this is important because he says, is the Christ who is God. There is a, 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 an idea or a false teaching that has really gained a lot of steam in our day and time these last few years that uh, the Christ is a mentality, it's like a force, uh, and it's not a person. Paul would disagree. Paul says the Christ is not an idea, it's a force. It, it's, it's one person named Jesus, and he is God. He says that I, the Christ, who is God, over all, blessed forever, amen. So Paul is showing how God is in fact doing exactly what he promised he would do to Abraham. He is creating a great nation, and through that nation, all the families of the earth will be blessed, namely through Jesus. But then he knows that many Jewish people had rejected Jesus as the Christ, didn't think he was the Messiah, didn't see how on earth God was going to conquer or have any kind of victory when Jesus was crucified on a cross. And so the first question he poses is this. Romans chapter 9, verse 6. 
but it is not as though the word of God has failed. This is the question. Question number one, did God fail to keep his word to Abraham and the Jewish people? Because your, your generic Jew that he's writing to or your, your Roman Christian that, that he's writing to, what they're, what they're thinking is like, well, is God really all that powerful? Can he fulfill his promises? If he sets something in motion and predestines to, to purchase someone and to see them all the way through heaven, is he impotent to do that? Because we feel like he made this promise about the Jewish nation but many of the Jewish people have rejected Jesus. That's the first question that Paul poses. Did God fail to keep his word to Abraham through the, and the Jewish people because many rejected him? So verse six, it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. He's going to talk about physical Israel and he's going to talk about spiritual Israel and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. He says just because someone can train their lineage back to Abraham does not mean that that's what the promise was talking about. But through Isaac... Okay, if you're brand new to the Bible, this is a lot of Old Testament uh, information for you. I'll try to do the best I can to catch up to speed on some of the characters um, because he's going to throw out a lot of names. This promise was given to Abraham. Abraham would have two sons. One of them was Isaac. And God chose to use Isaac. He did not choose Ishmael to fulfill this promise. So through Isaac, that's one of Abraham's sons, shall your offspring be named. Verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh, Jewish people, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise, who are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. He's drawing our attention back to Genesis. About this time next year, God said, I will return, and Sarah, that's Abraham's wife, old lady, he was an old man, they were given this promise, says, I will return, and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah, okay, so Abraham, Sarah, have two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. God chooses to fulfill this promise through Isaac. Isaac marries a woman named Rebekah, so uh, they, uh, that's, that's his wife. They had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. So Isaac and Rebekah, they are, are pregnant with twins. They have, they have two different boys. They're in the same womb together, Jacob and Esau, and God chooses one of them to work his promises through. After Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, the twin boys, and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. That's God. She was told the older will serve the younger, which is out of order for Jewish people. Esau was the one that came first. The Bible says that uh, Jacob came right after grasping at his heels, but God chose to use Jacob and fulfill these promises through Jacob, and so uh, it was, uh, it w- and it was done in the womb. Uh, he goes out of his way in verse 11 to say, God chose Jacob not for any good or any bad. He just chose. Paul is saying God has the right to make some choices. If he's God, he can make some choices, right? And it says, uh, she was told, the older will serve the younger as it is written. Jacob I have loved, and his twin brother Esau I have hated. So let's work through this a few minutes. This is how we're going to roll today. We're going to bite off a little bit. We're going to chew it for a while, try to understand, take another bite, keep chewing. Sound good? 
Number one, God chose individual people, starting with Abram and working all through history. God chose individual people. We call this, the Bible calls this election to accomplish his purpose, okay? His purpose was to bless the earth, so he chose a man named Abram. Why? We don't know. He just chose Abram, and he chose to use Abram, and he wanted to fulfill that promise, and so there were two brothers, and he chose one, and then they had uh, another two sons, and he chose one. And so God, throughout time, beginning of the Bible all the way through the end, you find him taking the freedom as God to make some choices. He's choosing. He's electing. And it's based on grace. He chose Isaac. He didn't choose Ishmael. He chose Jacob. He didn't choose Esau. And you see in verse 11 that how did he come about making these decisions? How did he choose one over the other? And it goes out of, our way, out of his way in verse 11 to tell us it's not because they were better. It's not because of good works. It was done even pre-womb. Could you, could you imagine how different the Bible and really Christianity would be if he chose Abraham because Abraham was awesome? I mean, it would, he would be telling people all the time, he's like, you know why God chose me? Because I'm the smartest and the best and the brightest. Or if he chose Jacob, because Jacob was an honorable, good, moral man. Could you imagine how that would go throughout history? Where they, I mean, they would just be puffing themselves up the entire time, but God goes out of his way to say, no, he chooses people based on, on grace and, 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 and things that maybe we don't even, don't even understand. Number two, God kept his promise to Israel. That answers the question in verse six. Paul's saying, does this mean that God did not fulfill his promise? Did he not keep his word? Paul says, no, he absolutely kept his word. What was his word? He promised to make Abraham a great nation. Did he do that? Absolutely. It's the only nation that exists today on planet earth from all the way back when because God has made them into a great nation and protected them as a nation. So he kept that promise. And he promised through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. He's in the middle of fulfilling that promise that people groups all across the planet are being blessed by the, the, the ministry and the work of Jesus. So the answer is, is yes. And did he keep his promise? Yes, he absolutely did. He kept it to Abraham, but uh, then he talks about the benefits of this promise, of this blessing, extend to true Israel. Okay, and what he's talking about is, uh, he says, when he says not all Israel is Israel, it's important for us to know who true Israel is. And so he says, if someone was born a Jewish person by physical heritage, yet reject Jesus as the Christ and the Messiah, he says, they're not a true Jew. And a Gentile, somebody like us, like probably most of us in the room, we're not a Jew by birth or by ancestry, yet we believe in Jesus as the Christ. We're grafted into this promise. That's what he's saying. So he kept his promise, and the benefits of that promise extend to true Israel. I think this is exactly why Jesus says what he says, and John, in, in, in John chapter 1, says what he says. He says that Jesus, he came into his own. Do you remember this? It says that he came into his own, and his own received him not. Meaning Jesus came into the Jewish people, and many of them did not receive him. But then John says... But to as many as received him who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. It's saying that first birth is not nearly as important as second birth. 
Second birth determines whether you're included into this promise of the Messiah. Not if you were born a Jew, but if you're born again as a Christian. For the Jewish people, circumcision was a big deal. It was a big idea. So Paul would say, listen, that was a a, a foreshadowing of something that was going to take place. And it doesn't really matter physically if you've been circumcised as a Jew. What matters, he says, if if your heart has been circumcised, which I'm not going to get into all the details, but what that's saying is that sin is cut away from your heart through believing in the gospel. He says what's more important is not physically if you're a Jew, but spiritually if you respond to Christ. So Father Abraham, right, had many sons, and many sons had Father Abraham, and he was the father of the physical nation, the Jewish people, but we also call him the father of faith. He is the father of a spiritual nation that are Christians, people who have responded to the gospel. You could talk about Christians being the Christian nation or the true Israel, so I feel like maybe we just need to mention this, that that's the, the real true Christian nation is this kingdom of Christians that belong to Jesus. It's not the United States of America. Just thought I should throw that in there. Number three, God's purpose in choosing is his glory. This is important. When I was early on struggling, I mean struggling with this idea, this chapter, these truths about God, uh, this is one of the components that helped me understand why it's so important that we understand God has the freedom to choose because his choosing, his election has a lot to do with his purpose and his purpose is his glory. God's purpose in everything is that he be glorified through Jesus Christ, his son. And, and God choosing us based on no merit of our own, but simply by grace, it produces humble and gracious and thankful worshipers who give glory to who? God in Jesus Christ. Again, could you imagine if, Paul cho- if God chose people based on their merit, who would come out with the glory? We'd be walking around all the time saying, you know what, God chose me because I'm awesome, because I'm moral, because he needed me on his team. Like if, if, if the choice is taken out uh, of his realm, put in ours, then we get some of the glory. And the big deal with, with heaven is that heaven is a place that's designed for people that are willing to throw all of the glory onto Jesus, if there's somebody that's like trying to, uh, to, to, to steal a little bit of the spotlight in heaven, they just don't get in, right? Because heaven is designed for people who are willing to give all of their glory to, to Jesus Christ. This is what I think it's, it's important to understand Ephesians chapter 2. I don't think it's on the screen. Follow along. Paul says, for by grace you have been saved. Which means it, it, you are given this free gift. We didn't earn it. By grace we have been saved through faith. And he says, and this is not your own doing. Like like even the faith that we put in Jesus, Paul says, was not our own doing. Even this faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. So the faith that we have when we chose, when we chose to follow Jesus and put our faith in him, Paul is saying that even that was a free gift of grace by God. Why? He says it's a free gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Why is grace important? Because the glory of God is preeminent. What God is doing is glorifying Jesus, and he does that through people who show up, not just forgiven here, but like in heaven forever, we show up, and we're like 
you know, so much surprised we're here. It's like, why did he do this? Well, it's not because I'm good. It's not because I'm awesome. It's because Jesus is good. It's because Jesus is gracious. It's because Jesus is merciful. God's purpose in choosing is always his glory. Number four, I think we need to deal with this phrase because it's, uh, it's a little bit jarring in, in, in verse 13. He says, as is written, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. What does that mean? Um, because we think that, well, that doesn't seem to jive with God uh, being love. He is love. He does things that are compassionate. His compassionate goes out through all generations. So what exactly is he talking about? And I, and I think this word uh, is very, very different when the, when the Bible uses the word hate, it's very different than the concept that comes up in our mind about hate. Uh, he is quoting Paul. Paul is quoting Malachi, which was a prophet that was speaking centuries after Jacob and Esau. So Jacob and Esau, over the centuries, by the time Malachi says that God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. He's not talking about individual people. He's talking about nations. They had come to represent a few centuries later nations uh, that, that Jacob became uh, the representation of the Jewish nation, nation and uh, and Esau would become, his people would become the Edomites. And, and, and at the moment in time when Malachi is prophesying about this, um, the Edomites that were descendants of Esau were trying to destroy the Israelites and destroy the promise of God. So He's not saying he hated a specific person. I believe he's saying he rejected the people group and the tribe and the family of the Edomites and he accepted Jacob because that's who he had promised to run his promise through. Uh, and most of the time when that word hated shows up, it doesn't mean this guttural dislike for something like, like, like we think when we hear that word. Um, normally it means, it means a couple things. It means loved less and I'll show you a couple scriptures where it means that. It sometimes means passed over and sometimes means simply chose another. Jesus uses this word and he doesn't use it the way we would. He uses this in Luke chapter 14, verse 26. Jesus says this, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Is Jesus saying you need to have horrible disdain for your parents and for your kids? No, he's not, because he believed in the commandments. He's, you honor your father and mother. He's not saying, he's not using that word like we do. He's using that word to say, if you're not willing to pass over and to look over all these other relationships and to treat his relationship as the most important, you can't be my disciple. He says this in John chapter 12, verse 25. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. Meaning if you hold on to what you want and your dreams and your life and your things with all of your might, you're going to lose it in the end. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Does he mean we should hate ourselves? No. He's talking about preferring something in the place of. And so I think that's, that's what he's talking about when, in verse 13 when he's talking about that he has chosen in, his, in God's ability to make his own free choices, he's chosen Esau. He has passed over and rejected, or chosen Jacob, passed over and rejected Esau. Let's keep going. Verse 14, he's going to answer the second question that normally comes up. I'm guessing you have had this question before. Here's the question. Is predestination unjust? Some of you are like, I wish you'd quit using that word. It's making me uncomfortable. Verse 14, he says this. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? 
like, like he, he knows some of these things are, are difficult to understand, so he anticipates that as we read this, like, ah, time out, uh, that doesn't sound fair. That doesn't sound just. So he poses that question, and he says, by no means. For he says to Moses, Paul quoting God, talking to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. He's saying we can't with our own exertion and will cause God to have mercy on us. It's simply from the merciful heart of God that he has mercy. Again, this is Paul defending God's right to choose. I don't know if you know this or not, but God doesn't answer to us. God could do whatever he wants. And you see throughout these verses that God is, is perfectly just. He will never do anything unjust. And yet he is unbelievably merciful at the same time. Which are, It's difficult for us to merge those two ideas together because they seem so, so juxtaposed to one another. It seems like we have to choose one. But God can choose both. They're both part of his character. If God chooses to save someone, this is what Paul's saying. This is as clear as I can put it. If, Paul, if God chooses to save someone and not someone else, he has not done anything that is unjust. Right? He's not done anything that is unjust. Uh, we get in trouble in, uh, in normally there's two things that we're basically all of us to some extent are guilty of. And these things are what cause this idea to be so difficult for us. Number one, uh, we, we underestimate we way underestimate the holiness of God. And we way underestimate the sinfulness of man. Because if you underestimate the holiness of God, all of a sudden it's not that big a deal that people have rebelled and sinned against him. And so it just seems unfair that he might punish sin. And if we underestimate our own sinfulness and our own need for forgiveness, then that gets us into some, uh, some, some troubling problems. Uh, but if we have an accurate view of both, that God is, in fact, m more holy than you can imagine. In fact, that's the only, if, if, if my mind serves me correctly, that's the only character trait of God that's mentioned threefold. That God's not holy. He's holy, holy, holy. It shows up many, many times. God is more holy than you could ever imagine, and we're more sinful than we probably dare tell others. <laughs> But if, if we believe both of those things, if we believe the holiness of God and believe the sinfulness of man, um, then it produces this view that Paul has. Where if God judges someone or he punishes sin, then he is absolutely just to do that. Or if God decides to forgive and to give grace and to give mercy, he is being merciful, he's not being unjust. Imagine, this is a, uh, a hypothetical situation. Imagine you have three children and uh, one of them has a birthday party. And uh, the other two are invited. And the youngest one comes to the party. This is hypothetical. The youngest one comes to the party. And guess who gets all the presents? The oldest one because why? It's his birthday. Is that unfair? So, yeah, it depends on how I guess you use the word fair. Uh, it's unequitable. Is it unjust? No, nothing unjust has happened. Something good was given to someone. But this feeling that they got something, like that, that's kind of this idea that Paul is dealing with. And our view of justice and equity, I'm just going to, you know this as well as I do, but especially in the United States, our view of justice and equity is skewed towards ourselves. 
right? Because we, we, we only say certain things, half of the equation are unjust. Like, I hear this all the time. People, it just seems unjust or unfair that God might punish someone and send someone to hell, okay? That, that's, that's saying that God's justice is not fair. I never, I just, I never hear the other side of that. Nobody really says. I just, I just don't think it's fair that God would forgive me and take me to heaven. Why is that? That, that, that should be equally as unjust as the other side. But like our, our, our idea of justice is wildly skewed in our favor because we have a tendency to underestimate the holiness of God and to underestimate the sinfulness of man. If we have an accurate view of both, you see that God always acts justly, never does anything that is unjust or punishes anything that is undeserved. And yet he's wildly merciful in providing Jesus as a substitute in our place for our sins. And so, like, this idea of, of justice in our culture, is, it's a slippery slope. Um, let's say you had a hypothetical situation where you had three kids. And uh, it was time to do the laundry. And you're trying to be a good parent. You're trying to be a good mother and a good father. So you're trying to be somewhat equitable in sharing the load and cause, making everyone do their part. So everybody now is sorting clothes. Everybody is folding clothes. Everybody is putting away clothes. And let's say, hypothetically, a child gets frustrated because they accidentally folded the socks of another sibling. It's the end of the world. Like, and then they start talking about it's just unfair. That's just not fair because I folded their socks and then you try, to, hypothetically, you try to explain, hey, it's nice, you should do nice things for other people. It was a great gesture. I'm sure they were very thankful until they keep pressing it and you're like, listen, listen, buddy, sit down. You do not want fair. If you're going to fight this battle, I'll give you fair, right? Hypothetically, I'll give you fair. You can uh, pay some rent. You can uh, help chip in for gas. You can buy your own school supplies. You can make your own lunch. You can do your own dishes. Like, I just don't think, son, uh, genderless child, <laughs> I just don't think you want fair, right? I, can I just present this to you for your consideration? Might I suggest, as human beings before God, that we talk a little bit less about fairness and justice and we ask a little bit more for mercy and grace. You don't want fair. Jesus on the cross in your place is what? It's not fair. We want mercy. We need mercy. Don't be skewed into thinking things are not fair. God is just and he is wildly merciful. He keeps going. Verse 17, he talks about the case study of Pharaoh. Again, a lot of Old Testament here. Pharaoh was the, the, the leader the, 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 of, of the nation, the, really the strongest nation on the planet at the time in Egypt. And God's people had become slaves in Egypt. And God was going to deliver them and bring them freedom and bring them back to the place of land that he had promised their father Abraham. And um, so he's talking about this exodus when God shows up and uses Moses as the leader and the mouthpiece for God to talk to Pharaoh to ultimately let his people go. Verse 17 says this, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
God was about to do something with Pharaoh, and the end goal of that was for his name to be really famous throughout all the earth, which he accomplished very well. After this, people weren't talking about how awesome Pharaoh was. They were talking about how awesome the God of Abraham was. And he says that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This is Paul using another example from history, saying God has some choices, and he's free to make some choices. So the question that I pose in my mind is, what, what, what does it mean that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and was that just? And I, I searched through a lot of scriptures the last few days, and nowhere in scripture can I find that God hardened someone's heart first. It's always that that person's heart is hardened first. If you go back, you can start reading in Exodus chapter 7, before the first plague that God brings through Moses. It says that, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Because, like, listen, Pharaoh wasn't a leader. He thought he was God. Pharaoh was worshipped as if he was a deity and God. And all of a sudden, Moses shows up and he says, listen, buddy, the real God's in town. You need to repent of your sins and put yourself underneath the leadership of the true God. And let's just say that Pharaoh's strength was not in his humility. It says, no, how dare he say that? I am God. I rule this place. He hardened his own heart. And then after the first plague, after the second plague, I'll read a couple of these for you. Exodus chapter 7 verse 13 says this at the first plague. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened. After it said a few verses before that he hardened it himself. And he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Uh, the next chapter after the second plague in Exodus 8.15 says, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he, Pharaoh, hardened his heart, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. And five, six times does it show that Pharaoh is the one that first hardened his heart, until after the sixth plague, you finally see that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, and that's what, that's what Paul's talking about. How then did God harden his heart? Was it just? I, I, I don't believe that God chose to make Pharaoh unable to obey because that's unjust. To make someone unable to obey and then punish them for not obeying, we can all agree, is unjust, right? That's like an evil father throwing his kid across the room and then spanking him because he broke a vase on the way over, right? That's just, it's evil and it's unjust. That doesn't jive with the character of God and I don't think that's what this text is saying. Uh, God sent, he didn't have to send Moses multiple times to beg Pharaoh to repent and to put himself under God. But he did. That was gracious. That was patient of him. And even that act of grace and patience uh, hardened Pharaoh's heart. He didn't need to perform 10 miracles to give him multiple chances. God knew Pharaoh's heart was hard, heart was hard and he asked him multiple times to come under the headship of the real God through repentance. And so this is what I believe, and many commentators come to the same conclusion, that it was God's grace and God's patience that hardened Pharaoh's heart. We're going to catch this verse in a, in a few weeks. This is Romans chapter 12, verse 20. I think it's the same idea, so I'll use it, but I'll use it quickly. To the contrary, this is Paul talking about what we're supposed to do when we as Christians are sinned against and we have some enemies. He says, to the contrary, if your enemy is hungry... The natural response is to get back at your enemy. But he says, no, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. 
How many of you want to heap some burning coals on the heads of your enemies? Listen, he just said you can. <laughs> it's just done in such a different way. He's like, what do you do? You, just, you give them so much grace and so much patience and so much love that they become so angry and frustrated with it that it's like burning coals on their head. I think that's exactly what happened with Pharaoh. God was so kind and just and he refused it so many times that his heart was hardened and then God hardened it further by keeping to push with patience and grace. Here, here's the problem is I think a lot of us have kind of a tinge of a little Pharaoh in us, right? We have this kind of, this tinge of when God calls us, to, we're not God, we're not the Lord of our lives, we don't get to, 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 to run everything, to rule everything as we wish, we need to put ourselves under the Lordship of Jesus. A lot of us don't like that, we push against that. And, and I, I, I know this to be true generally, that the more over time you reject God, act like a little Pharaoh, the more you reject the grace of God, the more hardened your heart becomes. In fact, Paul says it this way, the more that you reject your God-given conscience, he says you can, you can have these internal feelings that God has given us in our conscience where we know inside what is right and what is wrong and we suppress it and we do what's wrong. Paul says you're searing your conscience like a hot iron and over time it creates a hard heart. And God can break through any hard heart. I'm just saying this is, the, this is what happens. That's what happened to Pharaoh. Here's question number three and I'll work through this quickly. This is a question that I'm sure you've had. If, if you have not had, you've heard. Doesn't predestination lead to heartless Christians and apathy towards evangelism? If the Bible teaches this and we believe this, wouldn't that mean do we just all go home and sit on our couch and, and watch the Cowboys because we know they're predestined to lose? And it's like, what, it's not, what are we supposed to do? God's going to do whatever he wants to anyway. We, we're just lazy now towards evangelism and towards lost people. That's kind of this idea that uh, falls apart really quickly if you read the Bible. Okay, let's take a few examples. Well, first of all, I want to read... Uh, no, no, let's take a few examples, okay? Let's start with this one. We could probably end with this one. Jesus, okay? <laughs> if you read the Bible, you're going to find Jesus believes this. Like, he believes that it, 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 it's in his right to choose. I mean, he says nobody can come to, to the Father unless the, the Holy Spirit draws them. I mean, he said, but and yet, <laughs> true or false, was Jesus wildly evangelistic? Everybody say True. True. They weren't at odds with one another. Okay, Peter, if you open up the book of 1 Peter, I mean, he has the audacity in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, to call Christians the elect. <gasps> it's like, I didn't know he could use that word. He does, and, and he believes in, 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 in predestination, which is a biblical term, and election. Was he evangelistic? Everybody say yes. Wildly, In fact, he would be crucified upside down because they could not get him to shut up, which all of the people throughout history have believed these are not uh, ideas that are mutually exclusive, that God is sovereign and the sovereignty of his choice to reach lost people and see people come to faith is what? You're gonna, if you stick around, please come back. If you stick around to Romans chapter 10, you're going to hear Paul say things like, people are not going to believe the gospel unless you go and tell them. You have to speak the gospel. God's chosen method to save sinners is by people who have been saved going out and asking people to choose. Say, hey, Jesus died for you. That's a, choose him. Romans chapter 9, I'm going to back up to the beginning. We're going to read the first few verses and I'll close. God says this through Paul, I am speaking the truth in Christ. 
I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. You can believe that God is absolutely sovereign and be filled with angst and anguish to try to let God use you to see people come to faith. Those two things go together. Y'all with me? And so here's, here's the question, and I'll just, just give me permission to take this a little aside. I mean, Paul, he's saying like, I, I, I lay awake at night, there's a knot in my stomach because my own people, my own Jewish people who should know better. I mean, from them came the promises and the patriarchs and the covenants. They should know better, and they're rejecting Jesus. He's like, they, they, they should have been his enemies, right? Like, and this is the natural world. The natural world, and most people would say, if there are some people who hate your religion, they're the enemies. Paul says the opposite. It's like, no, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and rulers and places that are, that are high in, in, in this high spiritual realms. He's like, these, these Jewish people that have rejected Jesus, they're not the enemy. My heart breaks because I want to reach them with the gospel. So here's my question. Do you have any angst towards lost people? Maybe a lot of angst in your savings account, maybe angst towards your health, maybe angst that the economy doesn't collapse, maybe angst that oil will continue to rise. But do you have any angst, like Paul says, for, for people that don't know Jesus. Because listen, if you don't, there's something wrong. There's something massively wrong if you don't have a deep desire for people who are not Christians to meet Jesus. And so Paul poses the question, he says, look, anybody, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, this is Romans 10, will be there in two weeks. Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says, well, how will, they, how will they call on him in whom they've never heard? And how will they heard unless there's a preacher? And how will there be a preacher unless someone is sent, as is written? And he quotes Isaiah, he says, how beautiful are their feet upon the mountains of those who bring the gospel. Paul believed that it was the Christian's responsibility and opportunity to share the gospel and to invite people to choose to believe. I'll close with this idea. And we said early on, Paul's just not going to answer all our questions. Do we have free will to choose or does God have free will to choose? And I think, I, I honestly believe the answer is yes. As Spurgeon said, God's uh, God's sovereignty, his ability to choose, and our freedom to choose, they're two parallel lines that meet somewhere in eternity. And I know, I know this to be true, and this is the cross. The cross explains this very well. As all very complicated things in the Bible do, this is what you do. When you find a place that's complicated in the Bible, you put Jesus as a lens over that. All right, if you take the cross and you just look at Jesus on the cross, the sinless son of God, Two things are very apparent. God is just. He's holy, and if sinners rebel, openly rebel against his rule and his reign, he is just, and the cross proves that. You look at the cross and say, yeah, yeah, God's serious about disobedience. He's serious about sin and punishing sinners. You see, like, he is ju he's just, and you see what? He's unbelievably merciful. Why is Jesus up there? That should have been me. The cross explains this so well because 
I'll just tell you these two things and I'm done because I'm already over. God is just. He will never do anything that is unjust. And God is merciful. He has sent Jesus to die in our place for our sins to reconcile us by grace through faith to him forever. I pray God would put some angst in your heart and your soul to go tell someone about Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you. We need you. We praise you. We belong to you. These are difficult things to understand, and so I pray that your spirit might give us an extra measure of humility for ourselves and grace for others as we try to understand the mind and the heart of God. Father, I pray that uh, as a church you would give us a supernatural unity and love for one another, and Father, I do pray that you would stir up in us just an angst to see people come to Christ. God, to see people that are away from you, that are far from you, to see them, to, to know that they're not the enemy. They are, in fact, who we are fighting for. We're not fighting against them. We want them to know the Jesus that has changed and saved us. So I pray that you would move, and I pray that you would accept the worship that we want to give you. Thank you for your free grace. It's very humbling to know the reason we're here does not lie within us, but it's within you. So thanks for saving us. Thanks for this church and all that it means to me. God, we love you and praise you. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for joining us today on this podcast. We would love for you to join us at one of our in-person services as well. For more information or to support our ministry, please visit RedeemerMidland.org.